it didn't listen to me. It walked out of the thicket, it turned around and looked at me. They looked up and in this tree, there was a monkey man. And the monkey man jumped down out of the tree and started running away. And suddenly they're right in front of the car. He slams on the brakes and manages to stop and he's skidding because it's not quite, you know, um, gravelling. And for literally for about a second and a half, they just stood there because they don't know where to go. And you tell them panicking, they're like ripping up thing. Their, their, their face is like twitching. to Bigfoot Society, a podcast where we focus on cryptids, the strange, and the unexplained of this world. If you've got a story or something weird to share, send an email over to me at bigfootsociety at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support this show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Bigfoot Society. And now, on with the show. All right, Bigfoot Society, we've got the pleasure of having Mr. Mark Marcel back on the podcast for round two. It has been a while since I've been able to have you on the podcast, but I was able to meet you in uh, in person down at CryptidCon. That was awesome. It's good to see you again, Mark. How's it going? Well, thanks, Jeremiah. Uh, that was a distinct pleasure. The CryptidCon in Kentucky was my first time sort of like east of the Rockies for a conference. And so uh, I think you and I discussed this. It, it, it was kind of odd where there were a few friends there who I had met before, but there were a lot of friends, like electronic friends on Facebook and otherwise that I corresponded with. And it was great to meet them too. And I remember I was rounding around in the lobby, getting my 20th cup of coffee, and uh, you were just checking in. And you know, you have that, that Jeremiah look of your glasses and you were just checking in at the front desk it's like oh geez there's jeremiah <laughs> dang the feeling was mutual mark i was like oh my goodness he's a lot taller than i expected <laughs> <laughs> that's what you said yeah i'm usually sitting down in most of my pictures yeah. there you go but, but no dang it was it, it was excellent to catch up with you and all, all a lot of people at the conference um, but I gotta like brag about you a little bit, if I if I may. Yeah, sure. Uh, hanging out with hanging out with you uh, for the weekend, you know, you and I have like you know discussed stuff, you know, over you know messenger trading ideas and everything. Mm-hmm. But seeing you in person uh, was a trip because I, you know, of course I've been on your podcast. We talked. I've seen you interviewing other guests. But hanging out with you, I gotta say, um, one thing that you really have going for you, besides your sexy radio voice, is that um, you you're you're practically uh, a, a cop. You're practically a an cop? investigative report a cop, a okay, cop, or an investigative reporter because it's like someone in the crowd asks a question. Oh yeah, you're just hanging around. Or you ask a question, and you just sit back, and you listen, and you listen, and you listen. If you think of a question, you'll ask that question and just let people talk. And you're really, really good at that because you are—you have an ear. 
you know, you have an ear for listening and everything that's going on databasing upstairs. You, you have a really, really good interview skill, a really good cop skill to really get, um, get facts out of people, I should say. And that's, that's the first thing I came home from Kentucky. It's like, man, you should have seen Jeremiah, man. You, 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 just, you, just, you just sit back. You just sit back and let people talk and you're taking it all in. I was very impressed. Thank you. That that actually means that means a lot. I do try to I try to uh, I've learned try to learn that from a few different people that I look up to uh, the importance of listening, taking things in and learning to ask the right question. And uh, there are so many times. So the thing, you know, listeners, if you're not sure if you should go to a conference like Crypticon, uh, you, you really should because of, you know, not just like the speaking was amazing, but the the opportunities to hang out with people in a group that will probably never be able to hang out again and talk about stuff that is weird is amazing. And if you're there, you have to make that stuff happen. Uh, and that alone was worth uh, everything for me going down to Kentucky, being able to hang out with, you know, um, Mark and Alex and Eli, Scott, uh, all those guys. Uh, there are tons of people in that group that were awesome. But uh, let's get back to to the interview, Mark. Uh, so you're good. That was awesome. Um, if people haven't heard the first interview, I want to make sure that they know a, a little bit. of. So you've got a lot of interesting things going on, Mark, uh, that are really cool. On the one hand, you're a surveyor. Yeah, and a land surveyor. Yeah. On the other hand, you own a aquarium in the Pacific Northwest in Washington, which that alone is awesome. Uh, uh, right, right. Um, uh, I often tell people, yeah, hey, I have an aquarium. That's great. Is it 10 gallons, uh, 20 gallons? No. Uh, no, no, I have zero idea about how many gallons I have. Uh, the the aquarium that my family and I own and run was built in 1957. It's like uh, one of those uh, uh, holdovers uh, from this uh, giant road ball, giant giant ball of string run by a mom and pop attraction out oh. here in the southwest Washington coast. And uh, so we have 20 tanks, and it's uh, been a mom-and-pop operation since 1957. And uh, we are the number sixth or seventh owners, I think. And we live upstairs and uh, above our aquarium, and we've been renovating it since 2009 and uh, bringing it back to life. So, wow. yeah, we, we also run an aquarium. <laughs> Which, that alone, it, I mean, that could be... That's a whole story by itself. What's the what's the yeah, main thing? <laughs> what's the main thing people come to the aquarium to uh to see? Is there a main attraction? Uh, well, yeah. Besides, uh, um, uh, that weirdo guy out in Westport and Grace Harbor County, Washington, he was like right. the Bigfoot guy. You know, they talk. I, I get I get a lot. <laughs> I get a lot of Bigfoot stories. Uh, but the but the odd thing is is that up until let's see 2004 we're kind of getting off the subject, but up until 2004, uh, you used to be able to come into the aquarium and feed live harbor seals. Really, here at the aquarium, yeah, where live harbor seals were kept here, 
and uh, people haven't been here in 20 years, uh, but they still expect live harbor seals to be here that you can feed. And uh, that's one of the, our main requests that we get a lot. Can I still feed the seals? Uh, no, they left like a super long time ago. So <laughs> just again, we're getting off the subject, but you can edit this out. Uh, one of the things that we've done since we picked it up is that we've strongly gotten involved with a program through the federal government, uh, the uh, NOAA National Marine Fisheries oh, yeah. the West Coast Marine Mammal Stranding Network. And the way we got involved is that people would show up at the aquarium. There's a baby seal on the beach and it's dying. And what do we do? Well, we didn't know what to do at the time. So we got involved in the stranding network and the stranding network through NOAA and uh, National Marine Fisheries is where volunteers, including us, go out and uh, we uh, take a look at the animal, alive or dead, and uh, make the best assessment possible for the best outcome possible. If the animal is live, uh, we try to keep all the football games and all the frisbee games away, leave it alone, just, you know, wait for mom to come back, wait for it to return to the water under its own power. If it's dead, uh, we'll help with the exam uh, with our biologists, and at times, uh, we have the opportunity through our permit in order to take the animal and rearticulate its skeleton uh, for outreach and education. Um, oh, wow. at so that's how it's kind of been transitioned to give you the long answer to your question. Uh, hey, I want to feed the seals. Well, no, you can't feed the seals anymore, but you can check out all the cool stuff we do for marine mammals here at the aquarium. So yeah, uh, on, on top of all that, um, uh, I just uh, finished rearticulating a 39-foot uh, gray whale skeleton. Just oh, wow. How do you figure out how to do that, Mark? Are you just like looking it up on YouTube or like you just kind of figure it out as you go along or? Well, yeah, I don't know anything. I didn't grow up as a hunter. I didn't grow up as a farmer. I uh, never put down an animal. Yeah. Uh, I didn't deal with dead animals. Uh, but there's a great dude uh, named Lee Post. Um, he's Lee must be over 80 years old now. He comes out of Homer, Alaska. <clears throat> and he's known as the Bone Man. And so I had my first opportunity many years ago to rearticulate a harbor seal. I don't know anything about taking apart a dead animal and how to prepare a skeleton. But Lee Post, I, I Googled it. Uh, there it was, uh, 1999, the Bone Man Lee post. It was about 80 pages, and it was just this how to rearticulate something wow. uh, for 20 bucks, you know, just figure out how to do it. And it was like re skeletal rearticulation for dummies. Anyway, and Lee post is great. And he has this whole series of books how to rearticulate a moose, how to rearticulate a seal, how to rearticulate wow. a whale, how to rearticulate a bird. Or when anything, so I just I just bought his first book and it was earn while you learn kind of thing. So that's, that's how I started rearticulate, and that's how I rearticulated a uh, really really big whale. That's crazy. So, so <laughs> Westport Aquarium in Westport, Washington, right? Westport, Washington. Yeah, that's right. Perfect. So you've got that going on. We've already talked about the. Uh, 
the surveying where you're going all over the place. And then the other side of Mark Marcel that most people may know if they're listening to this podcast is that you have made quite the name for yourself uh, as regards to Bigfoot history. Before we, you know, I don't think in my other interview, I took the time to kind of step back a little bit though. And I want to know what was the, maybe, maybe I did ask, but what was the, there must've been a, a situation or something uh, where younger Mark just became fascinated with, with Bigfoot Sasquatch. Uh, what, what was that? We, well, we did talk about it. Okay. But let me reiterate. Thank you. Um, I, I think it was circumstantial. Um, again, I was born in May of 1966, right? Mm. And uh, so what am I, uh, 56, I think, right now, um, despite my younger looks. Uh, I think I'm 56 right now. And, and so I grew up in an age, along with other contemporaries in the Bigfoot research community, you know, the monster research community, um, in, in an era of the early 1970s, where there was, I, I, get, I could expound on how this phenomenon happened in the early 1970s, but there was this large renaissance um, in pop culture of the unexplained phenomenon, the unknown. Uh, I remember on my mom and dad's bookcase, uh, there was a copy of uh, Chariots of the Gods. Uh, oh, yeah. An offshoot of a Rod Serling series, of course. And uh, we talked about the Nazca lines and other weird stuff. Uh, you know, at that time, uh, books, mostly paperbacks, docudramas, uh, TV, uh, there, was a, there was this huge resurgence in trying to look into these unknown phenomena. I think a lot of this came out of, uh, I think a lot of this honestly came out in out of the Bigfoot phenomenon of the late 1960s, where uh, Roger Patterson, John Green, Renee DeHinden to a certain extent, other researchers were, you know, finding stuff about Bigfoot research. And I think that really propelled stuff into other stuff like the UFO phenomenon. If we have time, I want to talk about Ivan Sanderson as well. And uh, so this this like really got into pop culture, which later in the 70s got into things like Nimoy's In Search Of, mm. right? And then eventually dramas like Kolchak the Night Stalker, right? Mm -hmm. so when I was a kid, I ate all of that stuff up like crazy. I didn't realize this until later, how much of it, it had an effect on me. Exactly. Of, of these older stories, um, and I wanted to find out more about them. So the other thing in my youth uh, is that uh, my sisters, my three older sisters have moved out of the house, but they left behind this little nine-inch black and white screen TV. And I would always watch The Late Show, where once in a while they would show these old weird docudramas, right? And so I remember this as a kid, 
uh, where there's this great film, I think from 74 or 76, Sasquatch Legend of Bigfoot. And in there, it was, it was, a, it was a docudrama and it involved our researchers going out looking for Bigfoot. But as a backtrack in the movie, they had a dramatization of the 1924 Ape Canyon incident. Exactly. It was one of the greatest, not to date, there is another, there is another great dramatization of the Ape Canyon incident that came out recently, about two or three years ago. But I remember that as a kid of these miners up at Ape Canyon being attacked by this monstrous shadowy figure up there on the ridgetop, throwing boulders down on the cabin and it scared the crap out of me, frankly. At the time, I was like, you know, nine, ten years old, and that image stuck with me for the longest time. And it got me. Uh, it just it, it didn't get me into the research at the time when I was like ten, twelve years old. I realized that the Ape Canyon incident had happened somewhere close to me up here in the Pacific Northwest, but I didn't get into it. Um, golly until about uh, 12, 13 years ago or so. Wow. It's like, what, what, wait a minute. What were those creatures again, throwing down those boulders in that, in that movie, Sasquatch Legend of Bigfoot? And it led me to uh, talking with my friend Jeremiah today. About <laughs> I know, right? That's, that's weird. I, I love that old, I, the old 70s stuff is like, I love it so much. Uh, specifically, the movie, the documentary with Robert W. Morgan. Oh yeah, oh. Robert Morgan. Yeah, it's a delight. It is such a delight. Oh, oh my man. goodness! Yeah, yeah. Um, about Robert Morgan. Yeah, for sure. No, I I know which film you're talking about. It's or... in search of. It's is it in search of Bigfoot? Like it sounds very similar to the Nimoy stuff, but it's not. No, it's not. It was, it was a feature film. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it, but it was, uh, shall I say, highly produced at the time. Because <laughs> it, was, it was obviously that there was a lot of recreation. But from what I understand, that film, Morgan did go up with a film crew up on the Mount St. Helens. Mm. Up there. And uh, what you see, what was it? Was it a coyote? So no. good. What, was it a rattlesnake? Uh, well, there are a lot of rattlesnakes up there. There are no rattlesnakes up on Mount St. Helens, so there's a lot, lot, lot of hype uh, on, on that on that movie as well. But I know which movie you're talking about. I have the same love for that as I do for drumming for Bigfoot from the 1990s with Franzoni. Oh, with Henry Franzoni. Oh my goodness, Mark. You've seen that one too, right? Of course. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I, more yeah. people need to know about that documentary. That's why I, I love talking about it all the time. This is so good. You know, but. the weird the weird thing is, is that I I came of age, you know, as a young person, teenager, uh, outside of Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. So I hung out, you know, downtown Portland, and I, you know, I grew up as a folky, you know, uh, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie kind of folky musician awesome and i was uh busting on the streets and going oh out to uh uh open mics and stuff well there was um a band uh that i saw a few times more 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 than once and i see all their you know eight and a half by eleven uh band posters you know stapled up to all the telephone poles around town 
at Caveman Shoe Store. Are you familiar with Caveman Shoe Store? Is that a band? Caveman Shoe Store. So obviously I'm not, sorry, <laughs> but I'm going to write it you, down. You that really sounds awesome. Need to. Okay. You really need to. I'm not saying that their music is great, although uh, a certain person that we just named uh, was a band member of Caveman Shoe Store. And I was like, Henry, are you serious? You know, I saw Henry Fanzoni when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Oh, wow. he, was, he, he was the drummer in Caveman Shoe Store in Portland, Oregon. And it wasn't until I met him at a friend's house uh, during a party, I was like, holy smokes, wow. Caveman Shoe Store? But yeah, Henry Fanzoni was his old band when he was a kid. When he was like twenty something, was Caveman Shoe Store in Portland, Oregon. They have a bunch of albums out. And was that in the seventies or eighties? Did you? Uh, say? That was more in the eighties. Okay, was, cool. That was, that was more in the eighties. But yeah, actually, I saw Henry Franzoni way before I got into the Bigfoot community. That is amazing. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love it. Oh, good stuff. Um, what has your attention right now when it comes to researching Bigfoot history? What has, what's the shiny object for you right now that maybe you could talk about? Um, well, I'm hot. I'm hot. I'm hot on a bunch of projects. Okay. Um, that I'm willing to talk about. I'm, I'm not, I'm not like censoring my words or anything. Okay. Um, uh, but let me just blather on for a little bit. Let's do um, it. Yeah. Uh, have I have I ever discussed with you the Dennis Morissette files in Grace Harbor County? I know okay, my listeners are going to be like, okay, "Yes, me, tell me, me you let did." Me tell you about Dennis Morissette. Please tell me about it. My I have weird memories sometimes, Mark. I apologize, but go for it, please. <laughs> too. Um, Dennis Morissette was a Grace Harbor County sheriff um, for a long number of years here in Grace Harbor County. Grace Harbor County is in the southwest corner, almost the southwest corner of Washington. Dennis Morissette, this is in late 70s through the 80s. And I think think that he retired in the early 90s. Uh, uh, Sheriff Morissette uh, got the Bigfoot bug. Uh, He had gotten reports of a number of encounters around uh, Grace Harbor. Mm. He had responded to some himself. It got to a point where uh, it was so interesting and there were so many numerous reports that um, according to legend, not not so much legend, but according to legend, he authorized his deputies during working time to respond to 911 calls that they got of this large hairy man uh, out in the woods or, you know, pounding on someone's house or looking through their windows or whatever. And he authorized deputies to go out and respond. From what I understand, as long as it didn't interfere with regular law enforcement business. So there's uh, somebody who calls and says, there's this large creature out in my backyard and it's looking through the windows and it's attacking my dog or whatever. The deputies would go out and respond. And then if they get the call on the radio, 
you know, there's a robbery or there's like real criminal business, then they had to break off and split. But if that didn't happen, they would investigate, they would uh, make up a report, sometimes from what I understand with Polaroid Polaroid photos, and bring it back to Sheriff Morissette. Well, he did this for a number of years, and um, there are uh, there are were a number of uh, deputies working under uh, Morissette, including a man named Hereford, who uh, under his claim to fame with his name are the Hereford Cass out of Grace Harbor County. Oh, sure. And um, so, I also have a number of articles. Uh, regarding the Hereford Cass, uh, where they do mention that Sheriff Morissette was keeping this file. This file allegedly is in the vicinity of like an inch to two inches thick. Okay. So when Hereford was retiring, okay, excuse me, when Morissette was retiring, uh, there were some casts in the sheriff's office, along with his file. The casts and the file were to be delivered to a local museum in Ocean Shores. The casts made it, but the file did not. Oh, wow. Where's that file? I was given this project uh, by a couple of good friends up here, also members of the Olympic Project. where um, nobody knows what happened to that inch to two inch file that Morissette was keeping. Uh, I have tracked it down and I'm that close to finding it. Most of the deputies involved um, are now passed on and dead. Uh, There was a building fire for one of the deputies uh, where the file could have been destroyed. The issue is is that uh, old man Hereford, who is semi-retired from the state of Washington, is still around. He's my last bet to track down. I've called every single museum in the entire region. I've called state archives. I've called national archives. Nobody knows anything about it. But Hereford is still alive. And uh, he is probably my last bet of tracking down the Morissette file. Have you met him? If I down this Morissette file, it'll be gold. Wow. It'll it'll be an entire history of Sasquatch activity that's been reported on by deputy sheriffs in four decades. Wow. Do you know where Hereford is? Yes. Wow. I'll call him tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you're I calling him tomorrow? I need, I need to get up the courage because a uh, friend said he, he doesn't want to talk about it. He, he, it, it. It's something that happened many years ago, many decades ago, and he doesn't want to talk about it. But someone's got to talk to him about it because that, that file's out there somewhere. So the way I see it is I, I, would, I, I would recommend you do it. You got a 50-50 chance. Or if you don't do it at all, there's a hundred percent chance that it will, it'll never be found. A hundred percent. You got a 50-50 exactly. chance though, if you try to call them though. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing about, well, everything in life, 
I think I think it was Groucho Marx or Woody Allen. Uh, the famous quote is that ninety nine percent of life is just showing up. <laughs> all you gotta do, all you gotta do, is just show up, make that call, knock on someone's door. That's ninety nine percent of life. If you don't do it, like you said, that's zero percent chance. You know, it's gonna be gone. When yep. when you get that lead, um, again, I'm always beating the dead horse. When you get that lead, pursue that lead. Do not let it go. Pursue that lead because a year from now, someone's going to be dead and everything's going to be lost because their son and daughter threw it away in the trash or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Because everyone's not super weird like we are. And, you know, non-Bigfoot people are, are looking at this like folder of like, what are all these old clippings and writings? This is just whatever. Get out of here, you know? And yeah, it's in Goodwill well, or something. They might as well be like old tax returns or something. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to us, it's 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 priceless, you know? Right, so. exactly. And that's, that's wow. the whole point. That's the whole point of culture, honestly, to expound philosophical. Mm -hmm. I really believe that there's only like a, a tenth of a percent of every generation that keeps culture going, whether it be like my weirdos who make bagpipes for a living or my weirdo friends who are into Bigfoot research. It's just a few, it's this tiny, tiny percentile of people that keep culture going in a civilization every time. And it's just knocking on doors and, and making the phone call, right? Well, and like, to, to talk about, so like when I was researching 1970s Bigfoot in Iowa, I got to think real quick. Um, okay. So about what's public, what's not. Um, you must be, this is, must be like what you are like all the time, like constantly having to like do Jenga in your head. Um, but it's like, so you got to think about it because like some of these guys, they haven't talked about Bigfoot since the seventies. And then you get like some random dude, like calling them out of nowhere, like 40 years later. And they're like, how did you track me down? You know, like that's got to like blow your mind uh, as a, uh, as a person to have someone like track you down about something you were into like 40 years ago, just because of some little phrase on the internet. That's nuts, Mark. I, um, you asked me what I'm into. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to tell you, um, this is not a dead project. Okay. Um, I just, I, I did that. Um, golly, what was it? It was over a year ago. Um, when in, in the, in the Bigfoot community, we have the horsemen, right? You know, right. You know, Ron Green, DeHinden, all this stuff. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they, 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 well, they were basically the first that took Bigfoot research incredibly seriously, right? Mm. Uh, but fortunately, unfortunately, they were the first. And so putting their name out, because John Green was, you know, running a newspaper, you know, in Harrison Springs and stuff. So he got a name for himself exactly. as the Bigfoot guy. And then with Patterson, the Hinden made a name for himself. Byrne certainly made a name for himself. Mm -hmm. All these people started like throwing all these stories at them. You know, every day these guys must have been like picking up the phone, like, oh, I have a story for you. They were inundated, incredibly inundated 
with all of these reports and they were just like, you know, single guys. I mean, Byrne had some people working for him and, and John Green had I think maybe a person working for him, but these were just guys going out and looking for Bigfoot. Well, they certainly couldn't handle all of these reports. I think, in my opinion, John Green was one of the best just to like write down two sentences of a report mm. that he got and stick it in the file. And so those early early 1970s booklets, books that, that Green published, did have a fairly good compendium of, of those reports, but they didn't have time to look into it. You know, they were super busy because they were getting like whatever, 50, 50 reports a month or whatever. So um, there was this next generation that I think that the horsemen truly inspired. And I think that because many of them are still alive, those are the folks that we very much want to want to concentrate on today. Absolutely. You and me, Jeremiah. Absolutely. Folks like John Andrews, Larry Lund, right? Those are the people, like, they were a little bit younger than John Green and those guys. And these guys are still alive. I just spoke with Larry Lund for the first time over the phone. Oh, wow. About three weeks ago or so. Well, maybe like six or eight weeks ago. And it turns out he lives like pretty close to my house in Vancouver. Really? So I have a meeting set up with him. But my point being, one of them who is sort of like the, I don't want to say an unsung hero, but he was of that Larry Lund, John Andrews generation. And he was highly active in, in research in the early 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the guy's name was Richard Grover. Oh, that sounds familiar. I uh, think he... Yeah, Richard Grover was um, uh, highlighted in some of the early conferences. Um, and he was, he, was, he was a known guy. Uh, he wasn't like a, a star or anything, but he was a, he, a lot of people knew who Grover was. Well, what inspired me, again, getting back to these early, you know, documents, I believe it was Bigfoot Man or Beast. Mm. And I believe that was 1974 or so of an incident. That, uh, in Bigfoot Man or Beast, it's just a 60-second clip of an incident that happened up in this neighborhood called Fife Heights in Fife, Washington, uh, near Tacoma, where uh, a couple of uh, young cats uh, were coming home for a, from a party I believe it was Saturday night, and it's a it's a it's a residential neighborhood on this road, and up to the right, it's all residential houses, but off to the left, there's a steep drop off that goes down into a creek. When you when you pull up to this one intersection, these two guys see at the stop sign there's this creature that its head tops over the top of the post. The creature takes a two or three strides across the street to go down into the canyon, down to the creek, like 200 feet below. It grabs a left-hand yield sign, bends the sign, and leaves scratch marks scratch marks on really? the sign. I saw that when I was a kid, and in all these years, I've been like, what happened to that sign? 
Well, it and so in Bigfoot Manor Beast, Richard Grover responded immediately in 1969. Uh, he ended up going down to the street department, actually acquiring this sign, this bent sign with a scratch mark on the back of it and keeping it. So what happened to that sign? What happened to Richard Grover? I was able to interview Grover about a year and a half ago. Unfortunately, Grover passed oh, a, few, a few months ago. But I talked with Grover, golly, for an hour, over an hour over the phone. I was also able to track down one of the original witnesses who was there in the car at two in the morning, you know, to try to figure out what happened, also what happened to this sign. Uh, uh, this sign is nearly lost, but I'm not calling it lost because I do have a lead on trying to track down this sign from Bigfoot Manor Beast of this pipe Wow. This pipe you know. So my point being, is a two two point you gotta you gotta track this stuff down as yeah. soon as you find out about it and also um I, I hate to call larry lund and john andrews old timers or myself an old timer or david ellis an old timer but um you have to get these people online right now to get their story down because there is absolutely a wealth of information there are wealth of information I think about that constantly because it's like, you know, even though there's there's a generation where, yes, you can get the interview still, but it is extremely hard. The chances of you getting that interview, Peter Byrne, probably not going to happen. Robert W. Morgan, it, unfortunately, health-wise, it's not going to happen. Um, but you're right that, that, um, in Lund, is he in, uh, seventies, late sixties? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the, that's the generation that needs to be focused on right now. Um, and these that, guys would have, no, oh, go ahead. That, that was my hard part about, uh, Dick Rover. Mm. Uh, it's because he was in, uh, Las Vegas at the time when I talked to him. Oh, wow. And he went on and on, oh. um, about Bigfoot, his history, his history and its history in researching Bigfoot, how it kind of hit the skids where he called it the curse of Bigfoot. Um, and that was part of why, part of why the sign, as well as all, all of his files, all of his cassette recordings were lost, was he called it the curse of Bigfoot. Really? Where, according to Grover, um, he and his wife got into a screaming match argument one night and about how much time he was spending researching Bigfoot. And, and she was pissed about it. She was very angry about how much time he was spending about it. And he was like, fine. I'll show you. And he took everything, yarded it out of the office and threw it in the front yard. Mm. And there it sat forever. Yeah, until the moon. So um that, that it's one it's one of those things you have to strike while the iron's hot. But this hard part about talking to Grover, he was down in Las Vegas, down on his luck, hard mm. knees, uh helped him out quite a bit okay. financially. But when I talked to Grover over the phone, he was like, you know what? 
I'm ready to come back into the BIFPEP research community. I would like to talk to people about my research. And um, he was ready to go on conference tour as well. Wow. But then he passed then about he a passed, year yeah. later and, and it's too lost. Late. It's lost. So point taken. Point taken. Um, these folks um, are not going to live forever. No. You need, you need to get the stories out. Whether they're well-known researchers or just old, old, obscure stories, you have to you have to track them down and talk to them about it right now. So, Mark, that brings up an interesting question. How do you track down these people? Uh, well, Jeremiah, it's easy. Okay. <laughs> no, I know, because I've tracked down people. Tracked down me. That's, well, I, I just do. <laughs> okay, uh, let me give you one example, right. and a little, and a little. Let me give you one example with a little bit of a plug, um, uh, uh, about Ape Canyon. Okay. Um, when you think about 1924 and the Ape Canyon attack, and actually the Ape Canyon incident. Mm -hmm. uh, actually took place uh, between uh, 1918 and 1924. Uh, the youngest of all the Ape Canyon miners was a guy named Leroy Perry Smith. And he was not involved early on in trying to find gold up on Mount St. Helens in 1918. He was like 14, 15 years old at the time. Uh, but in uh, 1924, he was there in 1924 and actually, just prior to that, in 23 as well, uh, but he was there during the attacks. Wow. Young kid. Well, sorry. Uh, young kid. 18, 19 years old. Well, uh, he, um, uh, one, one thing he was quoted in, in the newspapers in 1924, after all these horrific events, was that, I don't know what happened to me, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened to me, but I know that I never want to have anything to do with it ever again. Oh my goodness. And that's what he was quoted as. And where he saw this creature, he saw this creature more than the other guys did, the other eight Canyon miners. He saw this creature many, many times and shot at it, right? Um, he was freaked out about it. And at the end of the day, for all those years until he died in 1975, he never said a word. So it, it was, he never said a word so much so that uh, when uh, John Green and other researchers came up to Longview Kelso and interviewed Fred Beck, mm -hmm. uh, Fred said, oh, well, you can talk to my brother-in-law, um, Leroy Smith, but he doesn't really want to talk about it. So John Green actually said, um, uh, that he knew about Leroy Smith, but he didn't want to talk about it, so I, I didn't knock on his door. Um, I got that actually from Todd Prescott. Uh, okay. He knew John Green very well. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. But, but um, the, the point being is that being an Ape Canyon nerd is that um, how do you track these people down? Well, being an Ape Canyon nerd, I want to find out everything. So I found uh, Leroy Perry Smith's obituary uh, in the Longview Daily News in Longview, Washington. And it listed um, the survivors, as most obituaries do. And it, it listed um, a son and a daughter. 
and two folks who, two young folks who were living with them. So the daughter, her name is Betty. Um, I just Googled her name. She's running by her married name now. So I found um, a phone number for her uh, through Googling because there was a newspaper report where she was involved in like a high school alumni association okay. or something and a list of her number. And sure enough, the phone number worked. And there she was through a long story. She She's still alive. Wow. And, um, and so I was able to interview her. Uh, I met her uh, just once so far. Um, uh, charming woman, incredibly sharp. And the thing is about two, two things about Betty Mitchell um, is that um, the story was, was that she knew about the Eighth Canyon story of 1924. She didn't know it was her dad and her grandfather involved with it. No way. Until I told her. Oh, my goodness. She didn't know it was her dad. Can she you didn't imagine? know it was her dad. As an, as an example, hey, Betty, did, did your dad ever talk to you about his early days when he was a teenager with your grandfather up there um, mining up there on Mount St. Helens? And she was like, no, you know, that's kind of weird. Um, he never talked about any kind of mining. But when dad died up in the um, uh, dresser drawer, uh, dad's dresser drawer after he passed, we were cleaning out his dresser drawer, and we found this tiny little burlap bag full of gold nuggets. And we oh never knew goodness. where that came from. But the fortunate thing is that uh, I'm in tight with uh, Betty's grandson, a very good friend of mine. And I have a conference coming up uh, in Kelso, actually in Kelso Longview, uh, in January. And, um, I only have, uh, 60 minutes, uh, but I'm blocking out the last 10 or 15 minutes because I, I, I'm actually have a very, very good chance of getting Leroy Perry Smith's daughter. Wow. The last living person. Yeah. I'm getting Leroy's daughter up on stage with me for a Q and a. And, oh and my goodness! This only happened once. <clears throat> I was at a conference up in Seattle, and that's where I met Betty. And um, she and her grandson came in, my friend Tyler, and um, and that's where I got introduced. And she was like, she and Tyler were like, "Oh, I just want to. I I'd like to hear the speakers." And Shane Corson was speaking at the time. And so I ran over to one of my Bigfoot friends, dude, the daughter of one of the original Ape Canyon miners is, is in the audience right now. And this 75-year-old woman left like a rock star. It was wow. like Keith Richards walking into the Bigfoot conference. Everyone went up and tried to shake her hand and wanted to talk to her, this older woman. Everyone wanted to know my friend Betty. So hopefully... Uh, she'll be showing up until so long you this January. But anyway, to answer your question, that's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Go to the newspapers, look at the obituaries, track down every single lead to find out where these people are, because more likely than not, if it's relatively recent, they're still around. That's how you track them down. By any means necessary. Yeah, exactly. Because 
if you don't, the information will die. And that seems very like straightforward and blunt, but that's the way it's going to go. If you don't, the information will die and it'll be gone forever. It's not on the internet. No. Oh, yeah. It's, it's all on the internet. No, it's yeah, right. The Nothing's <laughs> on the internet. No, nothing is on the internet. Nothing. Um, there's a conversation that we had at CryptidCon. Uh, me and my friend Scott and yourself, we got to chat for a few minutes. And I think that that conversation might be uh, helpful to the audience as well. I remember I asked you, what if you were looking for a newspaper and you couldn't find it anywhere. Where would you look for it, Mark? Like, how do you find newspapers that you know might exist, but like you can't find it anywhere? Okay, I'm going to give you an example, okay. and then I'll answer your question. Okay. Um. Again, an Ape Canyon reference because we're nice. supposed to be talking about Bigfoot and stuff. Um. Uh. <laughs> Fred Beck. Uh. Ape Canyon. Uh, none of the miners ever returned to the mining cabin site, ever, except once, and only two of the miners went. Mm. And it was encouraged uh, by the Portland Police Department. Uh, now, ge uh, geographic background, Mount St. Helens is in Washington. Mm -hmm. And to get from Portland to Mount St. Helens, well, today, let me say Portland to where you car park and go up the trail. Uh, it's about an hour and a half. Okay. In 1924, uh, they took a heck of a lot longer. Mm. Some weird reason, two Portland policemen contacted uh, the miners, particularly Fred Beck. Well, I think at first they contacted Marion Smith, but they had con contacted Fred Beck. We want to go. We want to go. This was across state lines and entirely outside of their jurisdiction. Why those two Portland policemen wanted to go up to the cabin site, I have no idea. But I do have their names and I have their pictures. And so Fred Beck uh, wrote um, in, well, he didn't write, but he has actually interviewed that uh, he went up there with uh, two Portland policemen, along with Leroy Perry Smith. It was just Fred Beck and, and Leroy Smith that went up there about a week after the attack. Two Portland policemen, one of my holy grails of Ape Canyon, a newsreel crew as well, mm. which means there could be a newsreel still out there with oh, wow. photos of the cabin site. But uh, thirdly, uh, reporters from the Portland News. Could you just imagine Googling those two terms, Portland News, and try to find, this is the name of the newspaper. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very ridiculous. News. You're never, ever, ever going to find it. Yeah. Here's how you find it. <clears throat> I was just, I, I'm actually on another research project, which is not, in, in today, is not monster related. Okay. Uh, I was just talking with my wife about it. Um, I hate to say it, the greatest bastions of our culture are librarians and archivists. Absolutely. So after searching forever for 
this newspaper called the Portland News, <clears throat> I looked forever for it. Couldn't find it. I went to the reference librarian, the head re reference librarian at uh, the Multnomah County Library in Portland. <clears throat> oh, shoot. Margaret's out to lunch right now. Um, she'll be back in about an hour. You know, didn't Margaret have that weird three-ring binder up on her shelf with all these old newspaper references? Where is that? So all these reference librarians were scouring Margaret's office. Oh, man. And um, couldn't find it. Well, she should be back pretty soon. Go do something else. So I just screwed around in the reference uh, section. Yep. Went back to the reference desk about 20 minutes later. There she was, 75 years old. And there she was with her three-ring binder that was all hand-typed, written out on 8.5 by 11 paper. And she's like, oh, yeah, Portland News. There it is right there. Go to your librarian. Go wow. to the oldest librarian you can find. Go to the oldest archivist you can find. Wherever you're looking, find the oldest librarian. I have a ton of stories that I can go on and on about. Find the old people because these people um, are the biggest badasses in the world. They hold, exactly. they hold our history. And so it turns out that Portland News is on microfilm, but it's only in two places. One, is in Portland. She gave me yeah. a reference about where to go to find it. Oddly enough, the other reel is in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. But, uh, but that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's, the place, that's the only place you find it. Kansas City? It, man. Uh, so, I mean, reference librarians know their stuff, dude. You have to track down the old newspaper people. You have to track down the old archivists. You have to track down the old librarians. And, you know, it's not all on the internet. Um, State Archives, National Archives, I talked to National Archives today. Yep. Yeah, good, 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 good people. But more often than not, these old references are not digitized. Moreover, they're not indexed. A lot of our culture, a lot of our history, monster history and otherwise, is just on microphone. It's sometimes just in paper form in these old archives. Historical, founding historical societies, newspapers, newspapers as well. You have to you have to go to the source, and that's one of the hardest parts about long distance research projects, is that many times these original resources are still where the incidences took place. Mm. You have to travel to those areas specifically. You have to find the time and the money. To go to those exact areas, I have I have a research project, a monster research project in Northern California, where the newspapers are not indexed, the newspapers are not archived. I have to travel down to a Trinity Lake in order to go to the newspaper to find it. Oh wow, <clears throat> that's crazy, man! That's when the rubber meets the road because it's like. This isn't just me sitting in front of my computer now. This is me getting in a car multiple hours to find the truth. And is it actually worth it to me? You know? And Oh, well, no, dude, it's always worth it. Oh, yeah, totally. It's always worth it. Yeah. Those many, 90, 95% 
of your league and in an absolute dead end. An absolute mm. dead end. But it's that five to four percent that don't. You're not you may not get to your goal. More often than not, it's gonna to lead to other leads, but that gives you something else to work on. Track down those other leads, track down those other leads. Don't uh, nah, uh, uh, that's one thing that um, uh, my family says is that when I smell a bone, I'm digging. Yeah, exactly. I'm digging for that bone, and I will not give up. Absolutely not. Oh, that's so, funny. Yeah, no, I get down, it, man. Down, down at Trinity Lake, I've got a little bit of a bone right now. So yeah, I love it. Oh man, that's good. There's a lot of good information that people can take away from that little segment we just had if you are into uh researching uh the history and um finding some tales for yourself which everyone should try that it's it's a fun time it's it's good stuff absolutely what is what's a time mark that you saw something in the woods that you can't explain or that's hard for you to explain um This is a long story. Okay. Um, you know, I um, I grew up um, with my family, obviously, and uh, my longtime heritage for hundreds of years is Irish Catholic. Mm. And um, I didn't grow up. I went to mass like, you know, twice. Um, and but I, I didn't really even grow up Catholic, but I grew up Irish Catholic culturally. And everyone says, you know, Mark, um, I asked you a yes or no question. Could you stop talking to answer your question? Because it like, takes you forever to answer your, your stupid question. Because it does take me like 20 minutes. Because, you know, Jeremiah, you asked me a question. Don't you want to find out the full details? No, totally. Yeah. Details, you know? Yeah. So um what you're talking about is down in southwest oregon in curry county oregon um it was um a project that i think is going to see me in the ground before i get done with it um i'm calling it the thompson flat monster uh, you, it got, uh, got a, aka the wild man of the sixes and uh, this is something that happened down in Curry County, Oregon. Uh, earliest reports of the wild man, of this creature uh, down in Curry County, Oregon, um, having encounters with humans. Uh, the earliest reports was around 1874, uh, where a prospector, colloquially, his name, his name is Nugget Tom, he was a prospector up there uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a gold area. Um, his name was, colloquially, his name is Nugget Tom, but I finally tracked down his real name. Uh, Nugget Tom was up there, and he uh, had pretty good lead. Not a claim yet, but he had a pretty good lead. And he told his friends that he was going to go up there and go prospecting. Well, uh, Tom didn't come back. Tom didn't come back, and his friends were like, geez, we better go up there looking for Tom. It's up on Star, Star Mountain, 
uh, on the south side of the south fork of the Sixes River in Curry County, Oregon. So they go up looking for him, and they knew they knew about where Tom was going up there looking for gold, and uh, they find him. He's unconscious, and uh, they bubble up his body, and they you know he's not dead, but they have to take him back into town and nurse him back to health. Mm. And they pick up his badge, and they pick up his rifle, and they take take him on back to uh, Port Orchard, and um, they're nursing him back to health. And one of the guys who found him at the bottom of this bluff, he looks in his bag, and he sees this huge hunk of quartz. And on the end of the hunk of quartz is the biggest gold nugget this guy had ever seen. Wow. Nugget Tom, and, nugget Tom had found gold. Well, when Nugget Tom comes to... He explains his story. Tom is crouched down by himself with his axe, and he's uh, checking out the rocks and the dirt. Something from behind him grabs him by his clothes, picks him up bodily, completely off the ground, throttles him, and throws him down this bluff where his friends found him. Tom said it was so quick in a flash that he really couldn't see what had grabbed him. But he said the thing was incredibly big and obviously incredibly strong in order to pick him up. And it was entirely covered with hair. Tom, shortly thereafter, um, he, when, he, when he recovered, he did recover. Um, he um, got out of town. Mm. He split got rid of his claim and he sold his claim to a couple of fellows uh, named Benson and Robbins. Uh, Benson and Robbins uh, were two prospectors who took over his claim. Well, things started kind of rolling downhill after that. Uh, Benson and Robbins um, had heard noises in the woods. Uh, they had seen these creatures out there in the woods. There's something important about this story uh, that's, that's, that is reoccurring over all of these accounts that last into the 1880s, 1890s, 19-teens, where these creatures are not these monstrous, eight-foot-tall, patty-like creatures uh -huh. all around. All of them are described like about six to seven feet tall, and all of them are blonde or yellow. In hair, they're entirely covered with hair, and they're walking upright, Bigfoot style, uh, but they're entirely covered, uh, reportedly, with blonde or yellow, yellow hair. Uh, Benson and Robbins are seeing these creatures. They come back up to their camp, and their camp, which is up on a little bit of a ridge, is entirely being torn apart by this creature. This is late in the day, and this creature's up there, just tearing the crap out of their camp. Very aggressive, growling, yelling, screaming. They take some shots at it to no effects. Their shots take, have no effect on this creature. They're like, I'm out of here. And they split. Well, gold is gold. Hmm. This area at South, in Southwest Washington in Curry County came to be known as the uh, gold gold rush of Southwest Oregon. Okay. Like a small Sutter's Mill. 
because there was gold coming out of the hill, come, gold coming out of the mountain. And everyone rushed up there to get this plant. Um, at the time, uh, I, have a, I have a great newspaper report from 1879, where a newspaper reporter went up there to, uh, he heard about the gold rush up there and he went to uh, go interview people about it. Um, it was a great report, a lengthy article from 1879, where he said that there were about 40 people living up there. Uh, at the time, they started out with load claims, but then they went on to plaster claims. And uh, there were about 40 people up, living up there, mainly men. Some of the men living with their wives, a couple of children as well. Uh -huh. And it was uh, mainly uh, tent camping, a little bit of cabins that have been built up there. And they're heading into the South Fork of the Sickness River. Um, there's a uh, there's an inlet known as Butcher Gulch, and so this whole encampment, this small community, became known as Butcher Town. And so the issue is is that well, what what was going on is that everyone had every, no all these people were not working like one claim; they were working individual claims. Their individual like own. Um, Cluster locations. And um, so they would go work their claims and they would come back at night and share food, share stories, share goods. Okay. Well, there's this fellow named uh, uh, John Jensen, with his name, it's probably Swedish, Nordic, Jan Jensen. And where's John? Where's John? Well, we better go knock on his cabin or check in his tent, and he's not there. And so they go up and they well, well, let's go up to uh, go up to his claim. And so they go up to his claim and they find his body. Oh no! With his head bashed in, allegedly with the rock that bashed his head in still laying there, bloodied. This is a period of about eighteen months where four of the miners showed up dead during this whole series of incredibly aggressive encounters, aggressive encounters with this large hair covered beast up there. Jeez. So the next one is McClone. McClone is missing. They go up there and they find McClone next to his location uh, with his body beaten to a pulp, completely beaten to a pulp. Where all of his bones are broken, right? Oh man. So the next one is a fellow named Thomas Johnson. The next one is another fellow, um, uh, which is his name is Mike Madigan. One by one, each one of these miners are found with their heads bashed in or their bodies beaten to a pulp. This wow. is way out in the national forest. This is oh, a very, very remote area. We were able to locate the burial ground because they didn't haul them back up 10 miles back up to town. They just buried them right there. We were able to find where these bodies were buried. Right? Wow. Small little burial plot on the National Forest. And so it keeps on going where the, uh, the, the report was with Mike Madigan just before he died. He, he's, he was known as the huntsman going out there and finding meat for Butcher Town. 
he goes out with his two dogs. Up there on the hillside, he sees this large hair covered creature up on top of the hill. One of his dogs takes off to attack the creature. Madigan starts firing shots into the creature to no effect. The creature grabs his dog, throttles them, beats them up, kills them oh, down wow. the road. Before Madigan can stop him, his next dog takes off. The creature is killing his dog. Madigan shoots him again and um, splits. The, the bullets are having no effect on him at all. At the end, when everyone is split Butcher Town because of this creature showing up and doing terrible stuff to Butcher Town, Madigan is up there by himself and he usually comes back into town every couple of weeks or so. Madigan doesn't show up. And so his friend, uh, Ramsey, Doc Ramsey, goes up there to go up there and looking for him and he doesn't find him at all. Madigan's the only guy up there, and um, Ramsey's up there, and he can only see this pile of rocks near Madigan's cabin, and it's like these rocks look piled up there unnaturally. He pulls the rocks away, and sure enough, there's a partially decomposed body oh, inside this pile of rocks. Ramsey said he knew it was Madigan because of his sidearm and his knife that was still on his belt. So we have four people up there killed by unknown means with a perp who has been known to have aggressive behavior up there circa 1890. Okay. So then what got me into this story was up there at Thompson Flat. Uh -huh. Mind you, to give you a geography of Thompson Flat, uh, Thompson Flat is like that. No, it's like that. It's incredibly steep going down. It's like the mini Rockies heading down to the South Fork, the Sixth River. There are just a few flats, I mean, very limited, limited flats down there. At Thompson Flat, um, there were uh, there was a claim owner who uh, his sons uh, built a cabin up there to work the claim. In 1904, it's called the Harrison Cabin. Uh, ben Harrison Sr. had the claim. Ben Harrison Jr. and Bob Harrison, the brother, uh, built a cabin up there. And so uh, there was a fellow named Ward who was up there in 1904 uh, with a partner named Burlingson who uh, was working the claim for Harrison. And one night, the cabin gets attacked and beaten on. Mm -hmm. 1904, a gold, so this is one thing that tripped me out, is that the gold mine, a cabin that's getting attacked, but it wasn't Ape Canyon, and it was 20 years prior. That's right? weird, yeah. And so the cabin's getting attacked. Warden Burlington bust out of there, and there is this huge creature up there, and they take shots into it, into the creature, and the creature turns around and goes back down over the over the ledge. About a week later, Ward is there again with the two Harrison boys, uh, Ben Jr. And, and Bob, and this time they're ready. Her, the cabin gets attacked again, 
they open the door and sure enough there's this big creature they take shots into it they turn around the creature turns around and goes back into into the woods so this whole story really intrigued me about all these dead bodies all these dead mining yeah. with the harrison cabin getting attacked in 1904 so i really got into it um golly about eight years ago or so started re-researching it fortunately um about a year and a half ago a good friend of mine uh very very much encouraged me because he wanted to do a documentary on the whole thompson flat monster monster incident uh we went up there and it was a good film research trip we you know documented a lot of the historical sites and everything um but the good thing is, is that um, we found um, we found the Harrison cabin. We were able to verify the Harrison cabin uh, through a very strange set of uh, circumstances, um, uh, which I can go on and on about. But <laughs> we, were, we were able to find the Harrison cabin from 1904. The weird thing is, is that uh, this is. Um, this is something that um, should not have happened to me, uh. frankly. Uh, um, I was just out there for a fun trip to help with the film project and uh, do my nerdy historical research stuff, right? Um, after 15 minutes, I'm going to answer your question now. Uh, there were uh, two PAs, um, Gordon and Jameson, along with uh, the, the folks who were helping us out, Kim Christensen, uh -huh. who is a uh, local person and uh, has her own research project up there, which is really, really cool. It doesn't have anything to do with monsters, but it's right, right up there. It's more geologic. Um, also, I was up there with uh, James Faye Bobo, uh -huh. along with Rowdy. Kelly. Rowdy Kelly. And uh, well done. <clears throat> this is uh, November before last. And um, well done. Came up out of the bottom. Okay, let's pack up camp. Let's get out of here. Uh, the two PAs, production assistants uh, from Northern California, Gordon and Jameson. Okay, goodbye. They get in their car and they split back to Northern California. About, uh, about half an hour later, Kim, who lives about, oh, 10, 20 miles south. I'm going to go home. Okay. All that Bobo and Rowdy had to do was park the quads back up in the trailer. And so we're all going to meet back down at the highway. And we're all going to, Rowdy and Bobo and I are all going to meet down at the highway because that's where we're going to get reception, uh, internet reception, because we have more filming work to do the next day. So we have to figure out, you know, where we're going to eat and where we're going right. to stay and everything. And so, okay, fine. Uh, Gordon and Jameson have already split. And Kim has already left. And it's like, okay, I'm going to meet you, Bobo and Rowdy, down at the highway. And uh, I'm going to go. So I know you guys are like five or ten minutes behind me, whatever. So I, I take off of my car down the road, little forest service road. It's about uh, 
Forest Service road wise, it's about 20 miles back down to Highway 101. I go down about five, four or five miles, and there's Kim parked along in, in, her, in her Subaru Forester, parked along the side of the road. I'm like, are you guys, are you okay? And she's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm just checking out uh, maps to a trail to a lake uh, where she had had activity before. I'm like, okay. So I keep on going. It's gas. It's about 5, 5.30 or so on a November uh, night afternoon. It's dark because it's autumn. And it's also a national forest, you know, large trees. It's very dark. And I'm in my uh, crappy Honda Odyssey, and I drive like an old lady. Uh, <laughs> I'm like 25 miles an hour. And, and this, this Forest Service road is like about a lane, lane and a half. And I'm driving with my brakes on. Uh, as I'm driving, after I say goodbye to Kim, about a mile or two behind me, I can occasionally see her headlights behind me. And I'm going through the curves through the trees. And so I go around a curve, and in front of me, there's a slight incline, uh, about five to seven percent ish. I can see about two or three hundred feet in front of me before the road crests and goes downhill. And I go around a curve, and right there in front of me, like two or three hundred feet in front of me, there is something dashing around, playing around in the middle of the Forest Service Road. Wow. I got to tell you, Jeremiah, this is about five to six seconds of my life that totally screwed me up. And I'm not kidding you. Um, I told, I tell friends, maybe I told you, um, you know, this is something that happens to other people. <laughs> I'm just the academic research, the historical right. research guy. This is something that, what if, what if Dr. Jeff Meldrum came out with this story? It's like, this should not have happened to me. There is something that has come up. Let me do my hands again. Um, coming out of the riverbed, it's very, very, it's like that steep. There we go. That steep roadbed and then it keeps on going uphill about that steep it's incredibly steep and all it is is a road cut about 150 200 feet above the riverbed there's something that's come out of the brush out of the forest and it hits the riverbed and it hits the road it hits the roadbed and it is we determined later about six and a half feet tall and it's running it's super fast. Mm. My, my first thoughts is that who the hell isn't playing in the dark on the National Forest Service Road? My next <laughs> second reaction is that why is this person wearing a fireman's outfit? Why is it wearing a road flagger's outfit? Because I, I realized later, because what I saw was dark beige, light beige, dark yellow. It looked like a fireman's outfit. 
Oh, wow. With, you know, the sleeves coming down, big bulky arms, mm-hmm. big bulky legs. It was all bulky. And it's actions that I, that I can't, that I can't reiterate enough is that when we are set up with this paradigm of what Bigfoot is supposed to look like, what do we think of? Patty, the Roger Patty film. Long, swinging arms, looking back. That's not the way it moved. It moved like the way an insect moves. So it it moved so jerkily and so quickly, it was incredibly, incredibly fast. It was in a jogger's motion, running like a jogger's, like a, you know, like a runner's arms. And it was just hauling it. It was just moving so quickly in a scampering motion. It, I was like, what the hell is that? It briefly faced the car. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, well, I pulled off the gas, but I didn't hit the brakes. I was slowly approaching it. Mm-hmm. It approached the car, and I realized later, I, I got back to a place where I could, like, sketch this immediately about 11 o'clock that night. It, it hit the center line of the road, and then briefly did that. And it kept on going. When it did that and looked down, immediately from a crouching position out of the brush came a second one. From a crouching position to a standing position. Oh, man. Again, shorter than the first one. Okay. Uh, maybe about that half a foot. Again, dirty yellow beige. And it was hauling it. They, they, were, both, they were both crossing the road. By the time the first one hit the edge of the gravel, the second one had caught up to it. Bam. Up the hill. At that point, I was about, golly, about 50 feet away from it or so. So I'm about 50 feet away by the time the first one is exited and the second one's about to go up. And I saw it very clearly, just incredibly short map yellow brown hair kind of like a golden retriever or a lab oh wow yeah no 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 hair on its face it was almost like the skin on its face was um uh deep um dark like a like a white person who is like sun tan too much out on the okay beach. sure really leathery. um heavy brow he- he- heavy forehead just cooking it Right up there, bam, lightning fast up on the hill. Well, I, um, it, it was crazy. It was all split second timing. And I, I was very freaked out. Like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And I almost put my foot on the gas and kept going. But I didn't. Because I realized in my split second thinking that what I just saw, I was going to have to talk with Jeremiah, someone. I was going to have to talk with my Bigfoot friends about this. And I kept on going. They'd be like, why the hell didn't you stop? So I slammed on the brakes. I just slammed on the brakes, put it in park. It's an automatic. I put it in park, stood up, 
opened up the door, stood up. Oh, man. Looked up the hill, and all I heard was down behind me, the river rushing. I didn't hear any branches breaking. I didn't hear any crackling in the woods. I didn't hear anything. I had estimated that it was about 7,500 feet by the rate of speed. They were up that hill, maybe 7,500 feet or so. And I didn't hear a damn thing. Oh, my goodness. So what the Bigfoot phenomenon is, I don't know. Whether Sasquatch can travel through the woods that silently, my tiny little reptilian brain immediately assumed that they were not traveling, that they were up there watching me. Absolutely. And all the heat started to rise back here and I started to freak out. Oh, that's because they're whatever those two things that crossed the road were up there right then watching me. And that's what happened. That that's simply incredible. And what I would have been thinking is this area more or less hundred or so years, you know, back in the late 1800s, these miners got totally messed up by something. Uh-huh. Are these related creatures? I mean, I don't know if I would have gotten out of the car, to be honest. So, Bobo was convinced that I saw two juveniles cross the road. Two, sorry, two what? Uh, two juveniles. Two, okay, two, yeah. Two, two juvenile Sasquatch crossed the road. Um, other friends that I've spoken with now, mind you, trying to be a good researcher, mm-hmm. uh, I immediately sketched this out. Yep. And then uh, about a week and a half, two weeks later, I wrote up an affidavit that I had notarized, and I sent it out to friends that I trust to review my affidavit. Too much of the time. I was kind of like later, like a few days later, thinking about myself as, you know, a, a historical researcher into the modern phenomenon. Um, what do we hold? What do we hold paramount? What do we hold paramount in historical Bigfoot researcher research? Things that's been reported on that the witness has been willing to sign a notarized affidavit sure at least an affidavit and i'm like damn i'm not going to be just one of those stories i know what i saw i don't know what i saw but i know what i saw and so i'm going to report on it i'm going to make an affidavit or i'm going to have it notarized so i sent it out to bigfoot research community friends to have it just to have it and give me their comments right and so um since then other friends have said well you could have very well have seen the descendants of those creatures out there with the miners because i i don't i'm i'm not i'm given the historical reports of them being six or seven feet tall and being you know dirty yellow blonde uh in reports for hair color um it seems to jive yeah no it totally does so 
either I saw the originals that they lived 300 years, or I saw the <laughs> or I saw the descendants of those people that monkeyed, excuse the pun, uh, monkeyed with the miners out there in the 1880s. So, oh man, there's so so many different roads you can go off of this. So, um, yeah. having that having that encounter, I'm curious. Did that affect how you pictured Bigfoot in your mind, what you think it is, or did it leave more questions than you had before? Like now I really don't know what we're dealing with here. Yeah, both. Yeah. Both, both, both honestly. Um, because up until November before last, mm. you know, I'm just like this, you know, Cool guy who researches old stories and tracks down family members of old, you know, encounters, that kind of thing. And suddenly it became more real. Yeah. Mm, to a degree. Um, I think I mentioned this to you, mentioned this to you in Kentucky. Um, you know, and I, I don't get a lot of contemporary reports. I don't get a, a lot of concurrent reports, you know, like, you know, Cliff and Melissa. Sure. The North American Bigfoot Center. They're the museum. They get they get contemporary reports every damn day. Oh yeah. You know I don't, but um, I have gotten some. And uh, I remember one in particular. One in particular. It was a fellow who came to a conference, um, just to come to the conference, and he's about fifty, uh, restaurateur in Seattle. And he had a very, very profound experience when he was like 12, 13 years old out, out in Renton, um, outside of Seattle. And um, he's just kind of like, we're all just outside, you know, having coffee, just chatting outside. And he's hanging out there, you know, just like on the periphery. And we oh, hi, hey. And he comes up and joins us and starts talking. And then he starts to tell us his story. Um, one of the greatest researchers in the Bigfoot research community, um, I feel, is Derek Randalls, who oh, sure, yeah. heads up the Olympic Project. Derek is there. I'm there. Shane Corson is there. We're all in a circle just hanging around while this guy tells us his story when he was a young guy. And we're all kind of quiet, listening to his story. Pretty incredible story outside of Renton. And uh, Derek asks one of the greatest questions I've ever come across. And Derek was like, well, to this fellow, would you be interested in recording your story, either on audio or video? And uh, this fellow says, no, I just wanted a safe space to come and tell my story. That's amazing. And yep. Damn. Yeah. Dude. That is a real story, and actually, wow. what proved it is that's a great question from Derek Randall's. Especially when they say no, I don't want to record it. I just wanted because yep. he said people back home don't. You know, I'm not comfortable telling them my story. You guys, I'm comfortable telling my story. Absolutely. So he told the story, and I was like, "Dang!" So what happened to me up at Thompson Flat in Curry County? Um, didn't um, didn't really change my perspective, but it certainly gave me a lot more uh, empathy for listening to these oh, contemporary wow. reports. 
Um, I don't, I, I, I use this term like way too loosely because I know that there are a lot of people, you know, dealing with PTSD uh-huh. but, um, in, in real, you know, heavy duty situations, awful, awful traumatic situations. But too many of these reporting parties that I speak with who have encountered this phenomenon that we call Sasquatch Bigfoot or a lot of other anomalous, you know, encounters, like my fellow I was just speaking with, it's like there's this looping. There is this PTSD sort of phenomenon where there's a looping of this encounter in their head where when they wherein they find that safe space to talk about it, they cannot not talk about it. Wow. Or it's like this nice long haired guy with a hat, Mark, he's gonna listen to me. They, they come up, it's like, dang, I gotta tell you something. Mm-hmm. I'm that safe space. I want to be that safe space. All the all the Bigfoot research community wants to be that safe space to come up and tell their story. Absolutely. For, me, for my personal experience, um, it's a little bit. It's a little I'm not saying it's PTSD, but I don't know why, but for the longest time, I could not get this story out without tears running down my face. Oh, wow, Mark. Really? I have no idea why. Because, you know, when I saw it, it's November. About a week and a half later, it's Thanksgiving. Um, That's when I told um, my close family. It's a small Thanksgiving uh, gathering. I got halfway through it, and I don't know why. (laughs) Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up right now. Um, uh, um, tears started running off, off of my face. I, I, I didn't feel unsafe. I didn't feel any malice. I didn't feel harmed. I didn't feel anything, but it was just um, anything bad. It was just, it was so disturbing. I had never, ever, ever seen anything like that before. It was so disturbing. I just tears started coming down and I oh, wow. and that, that, that was the way it that was like Shane Corson called me up after I sent him the report but dude I have to talk to you and so I talked to him on the phone and yeah sure enough halfway through the phone conversation I started crying and I don't know why it, yeah, it was... it's, it's a bizarre bizarre phenomenon it's a bizarre phenomenon when a human encounters it man I got to ask you, but first off, again, that's the wrong answer, Jeremiah. But it's a good answer. And first off, so thank you for for sharing. It's an amazing story, a true story. Those are how did so you said Bobo and and Rowdy were right behind you. Mm -hmm. So what happened when they caught up with you? Um, um, uh, just just a quick backtrack. Yeah. Um, on, on on the road, uh, just before I saw these two um, creatures, I use the word creature a lot. Mm. Uh, Cliff, our, our good friend Cliff Berrickman, yep. uh, said, um, so you're not convinced that you saw two Sasquatch? Because I told him, and I sent him the report, and you know, of course he's convinced that I saw two Sasquatch cross the road, and he's like, you didn't, you're not convinced that you saw two Sasquatch? And it's because I don't know what Sasquatch is. Mm. I don't know what the phenomenon is. Um, I don't mean to keep beating this to death, but I'm I'm just a historical guy. Right. Um, um, 
people that come to me with the North American wood ape, sure, I'll I'll listen to your research, and I'll you know there's a lot of good research out there, um, and I'll listen to you. Other people, interdimensional portal being that it doesn't have a lot of evidence behind it, but I'm still going to listen to your story right. because I feel like we as humans, um, myself in particular. I don't have the tools in my toolbox to come up with any kind of empirical evidence before I'm dead mm. about what this Sasquatch phenomenon truly is. Okay. All I'm doing is just doing the research that I love to do, the historical research, and document the crap out of it so that two, three, 20 generations from now, it'd be like, oh, yeah. Mark Marcel did all this historical research and they, you know, they can put that, they can put that in their toolbox. Exactly. And yeah. No, that's so cool. What, 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 we, what I can do, what you can do, Jeremiah, in our lifetime, I don't know what we can do. So exactly. all I do, I listen to the stories. I listen to the evidence. I listen, and mind you, stories are evidence. First-hand accounts, second-hand accounts, third-hand accounts is parole evidence. It is true stories that could be put into the evidence record, right? And so, um, can you remind me of the question? I got really, really excited about <laughs> the question. So, that yeah, the question was, uh, how did Bobo and Rowdy react oh, right, once they caught you. up with you? Because you said yeah. they were like in a Sorry. close proximity ish, right? Yes. Uh, so um, I slammed on the brakes and I got out of the car and I looked up the hill and I stood there frozen for a very long time. Kim, Christensen came right behind me, eh, maybe about two minutes later or so. And it's, it, it's getting very, very dark at that point. And um, I fumbled my way up to Kim's uh, driver's side door and was there an accident no <laughs> something just crossed the road and she blasts out of her car oh my wow. god and so i'm showing her downhill because i was very very certain about where these two creatures exited the road where they entered the road because i was about two or three hundred feet away wasn't so sure so i'm sure i'm showing her where where it is and uh, Kim, 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 Kim is a great, great confidant, mm. and um, she has a lot to offer. She's very, very enthusiastic about Bigfoot, and so you know, you know, there's a lot that's Bigfoot out there in the woods, which could be, could not be. Sure. And so, about three, two or three minutes after Kim pulls up, there's Bobo. Bobo and Rowdy are separate vehicles. Bobo pulls up, and I go to his driver's door, and um, he rolls down the window. Was, was there an accident? I was like, no. No. Was there a flat tire? And I was like, no. Um, I, Bobo said later, you couldn't even talk, dude. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, Something just crossed the road. Wow. And like, you saw Squatch. <laughs> and I, you know, did this. And I was like, I saw two. And I was like, holy crap. 
and he boils out, he pulls out of his out of the driver's door and he runs back to Rowdy's truck. Rowdy's behind him, he's parked by that point. And he goes up to Rowdy's door. And he's like, Bobo's like, and I, I wander back up to Kim where the creatures are crossed. And Bobo's like, a squatch just crossed the road. And Rowdy's like, um, who saw it? Kim. And Bobo's like, no, it was Mark, dude. And so <laughs> Rowdy at, on that trip was the director of photography. And her eyes like, shit. And he starts pulling out all the mics and cameras. And the good thing about this whole encounter was that Rowdy comes boiling out of the car, skips a lab on me, skips a mic on me, get the camera, start talking right now. Yeah, uh, no, that's awesome. And so they ended up um, getting my reaction probably in the vicinity of about four or five minutes after the two creatures crossed the road, which I haven't wow. seen, and I'm not sure if I want to watch it either. Mm. Um but the interesting part about it is that um, I would I would take I would I would take Rowdy Kelly out anytime with me. Mm. Um, he is a good good friend, and he's a badass. Um, he's in great shape too. He's a little bit older than me, I think. He's in great great shape. So uh, there's the red bed, and where the creatures exited was about a. It was a ditch, small ditch off the road, and about you know dirt going up about a forty-five degree angle, about five six feet, and then there's just rock outcropping, a rock escarpment that goes up. I don't know, I don't know, about eight ten feet or so, of where it's exposed rock, and then it continues uphill very steeply from there. So Rowdy's up there with his camera and his bright light, they feel so able to hold down on the road we're all lined up Kim the me Kim and Bobo are all standing on the edge of gravel we're watching Rowdy and Rowdy is scanning and filming the very top of this rock escarpment and all four of us including Rowdy all see it at the exact same time he's scanning he's scanning along and it's just exposed rock with a little bit of detritus and leaves from the slope coming down and he's scanning along and sure enough we see it right where 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 i determined where those creatures exited the road there is a scrape i'm gonna hold up my hands okay. about that big it's about uh six eight inches wide mm -hmm. and it's just straight down where the moss and the leaves have a fresh scrape. Oh, no way. Down at the very top, where it's going uphill, as if something was trying to gain uphill, and a appendage slip, a foot or a hand, or whatever you want to call it, yeah. slipped about eight inches wide where it slipped, and the scrape was just like brand new. Oh, my goodness. It, it just happened, and then went up. Um, the next day, about two in the afternoon, uh, Bobo and Rowdy and I, after some filming at a newspaper office in Middle yeah. Point, went back up there, and uh, we made our way up above the rock, up above the rock escarpment, up into the trees, up into the woods, and we found some impressions. Nothing I was just going to ask you. Nothing enough to cast. 
Uh, Rowdy did find one that could have been toes, maybe not, but again, nothing nothing to pass. But there was something mucking around up there. There's nothing around up there, elk, deer, whatever. But there were some impressions up there. Uh, wow. and then the following May, when uh, last May, when we filmed up there, um, we had uh, weird noises, some weird encounters up there as well. Yeah. In the same area, it, you it, had some animal yeah, bloods. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, the odd thing is, is like right where Kim had uh, parked her car, uh, just before I saw these creatures, uh, where she had parked her car into a lake basin down below, where she had, um, she and a partner at the time were basically escorted out uh, oh, by wow. and uh, something. And we had, we during that time in May, uh, we had uh, knocks and whoops and something crossing the road and some growls uh, up there. Uh, so there's, there's heavy activity. The weird thing, Jeremiah, is that this whole Thompson Flat monster project has basically sent me into from being just the historical uh, yeah. physical evidence research guy into something's going on up there on the South Fork of Sixes River. And um, I'm tending to like going into the concurrent research guy because something's yeah. going on up there. Oh my goodness. Did you guys get uh did you have an audio recorder going at that time? You did? Yeah. Did you capture stuff? Yes. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Pretty fun. This is last May for, the, okay. for, the second, for our second trip up there. Uh, down this logging road, this logging road that overlooks the lake. Um, uh, lake. I'm trying to do this with my hands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> lake and a ridge coming up from the lake and another ridge coming up from the lake up to the logging road up above. Uh, Kim had been down there on a very, very long hiking trip many years ago and had had something escorting her and her partner along the hiking trail. They made camp and they get rocks down, thrown down onto their camp and a bunch of screaming, yelling, and it's like, let's get the hell out of there. And they got the hell out of there. So we uh, decided to go check it out in the middle of the night of all places, all times. It was like midnight. And uh, we're down there at midnight. It's dark. Uh, mist and fog are starting to roll in pretty darn hard. Mm. And way down there, down at the lake, maybe about a thousand feet down, Kim and I are like, who's talking down there? We cannot make out any words, but we can hear male voices once in a great while talking. Okay. But two male voices talking down there at the lake. So we go down in the woods and we listen. Three or four minutes later, it sounds like two men are having like a wild conversation. Not mad, but it sounds like two men talking down there, a thousand feet downhill down by the lake. How is that? Mm. So we go back up to the uh, road and we tell everyone about it. There's about five or six, seven of us up there on the road. Down on one ridge, there's a distinctive knock. Uh, wow. Bam. So we go down there. We go down the road 
down to where the ridge intercepts the road. We're listening, we're listening. About 600 feet up the road, where the other ridge intercepts the road, somewhere over there. Whoop! So we all run over there. Listen. Listen. Down on the other ridge. Knock. We all run down there. And this goes on with a whoop on one ridge and a knock on the other ridge. This goes on for like 45 minutes an hour. No way. Yeah, this goes on and on and on and on. Oh my goodness. At like five minute intervals. And uh, I don't know a lot about, you know, contemporary reports or contemporary Sasquatch phenomenon, but everyone, especially Bobo, is like, you're messing with us. Totally. You know, over and over, because, you know, just go tell these humans going back and all these puny humans going back and forth. You know, it must have been a riot. So uh, I have a thermal uh, for a while. And I'm looking up the road. I'm looking up the road. I'm looking up the road with this thermal. Nothing. Okay, after 20 minutes, I'm like, I'm tired of looking through this monocular thermal. Okay. Turn around. Back down the road. And uh, Sam Kitchen comes looking it down to me. Larry, who is with us, Larry just heard something cross the road. Wow. And like three steps and go up the hill from the lower elevation of the lake, cross the road, go up the hill behind us in three steps. So I'm up there with my thermal. I don't look there with my thermal. I, I don't see anything at all. Everyone's back down behind me on the road. And we swear, and this is caught on audio, that up above, just only, only about 20, 25 feet up above the road on a little ledge, there was this big growl. Wow. And then a brush rush of something shooting back up the hill after the growl and apparently this is all caught on audio until the film comes out dude that's nuts man you nuts it's crazy. so good the weird thing is is that i only hope that this is caught on film because i'm standing there with a numbskull out there trying to do bigfoot research at one in the morning and i don't know what i'm doing and then uh, we all have, you know, we don't have headlights. We don't have headlamps. It's all just green light. I don't have any lights on or anything. And out of the dark, out of the fog, here comes Bobo. And he comes right up to me in the fog. And he's like, they're here. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. I goosebumps. I'm like, crap. Dude, if anyone knows... <laughs> like they're here they're here man <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome dude i hope that's me out. <laughs> this someday man stuff i i just hope i can see stuff like that someday i mean that just sounds like amazing footage and like who knows fingers crossed fingers crossed but yeah this this whole this whole film project i gotta tell you i i was i again i'm still amazed about my whole life yeah you know, i shouldn't be talking to jeremiah right now all the big important people should be talking to jeremiah but i thought you are the big important 
person for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, I got, I got involved with this whole, you know, Ape Canyon gig, and it's kind of like my, you know, namesake or whatever. I got involved in the Thompson Flat project, I think, initially in 2015, 2016 or mm. so. And so from what I understand, talking with Bobes, is that after finding Bigfoot, you know, uh, you know dissolved, Bobo is moving on to feature-length documentary projects. Sure. And one of the first ones that he uh, picked, which is very nice of him, was the Thompson Flat Monster Project. Mm. And that's what kind of pushed me into this long distance project into actually making it happen. And from everything that we picked up in the field, the historical stuff that we found, the physical evidence that we found of early Thompson Flat Monster encounters, this film is going to be just bomber. And I'm excited. Uh, and, and it needs to come out. It needs to come out. Dude, okay, so before we're getting, uh, you were right. It, the two hours is going to go quick. Um, <laughs> it's 9.30, man. We got to go. So you need, you got to get one of those, like, uh, uh, cameras for your car, especially if you yeah. ever go back there. You got to have that set up, man. Who knows? You could have another encounter in that area, but Yeah. yeah. It's it's always the case. I've yep. had um, I've had vocalizations up at Ape Canyon, and our good friend David Ellis. The first thing he said is, "Did you have a recorder?" I was like, "No," and oh David gosh. said, "Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> you don't you don't have it when it happens." Talk to Shane Court. Talk to any of those guys, uh, Chris Spencer, and be like, yeah. "Tell me the task cam I need to get and spend." Can you spend 30 minutes with me about like he spent 30 minutes with me on how to use it and it was invaluable. Like Chris Spencer is the nicest dude. Uh, Chris gave me the lowdown oh, on good. the driver audio recorder. Good, good, good. Uh, with it with the ammo box and everything for like yeah. 25 bucks. It's like yes, um, I'm I'm deploying that at the Thompson Flat next time I go. Oh up. no way. Oh no, I am for sure. Yes, that's awesome, and, dude. And also, also, I'm going up to Eighth Canyon in July, and I'm going to be doing the same thing. Yes, Mark, that's amazing, dude. Thank you so much for for spending a few hours of your night uh, just chatting about Bigfoot and sharing your story. And this has been such an amazing time. Uh, before you go, though, I want to make sure that you have the uh, opportunity. Uh, you do have a pamphlet out. Um, how, is there anything that you want people to uh, follow to keep up to date or how can they purchase your Ape Canyon pamphlet, things like that? Uh, just con, uh, Jeremiah, uh, I'm becoming an, a, an adult in the Bigfoot research community. Okay. Now. Um, I am getting a website that I cannot develop yet okay. uh, because I haven't bought it. Uh, but I'm about, but I'm about to, and maybe you can help me out with that. Uh, I'm getting a website. Um, actually, when you come to conferences, believe it or not, I'm going to have a booth where you can come and talk to me and see yes. some really cool stuff. You know, so I'm at a squat. I'm at Squatch Fest uh, third week in January in Tulsa, Longview, and I'm again in Forks, Washington on Memorial Day. Oh yeah. Uh, so you can check me out there. And also, um, yes, I do have uh, my Mountain Devil booklet. I also am producing this very second, uh, my uh, Thompson Flat Monster book as well. 
that you can check out, and I'll send you rush copies, Jeremiah, on the Thompson Flat Line, so you can check that out. Too. Nice, that's awesome. But, but ma- ma- mainly, you can just Facebook me, and I'll. Yeah, look up Mark Marcel on Facebook. Thankfully, it's a very unique name, so there's not a lot of... It's very unique. It's easy to find you. So he's out there, and you can try to... Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Mark, for coming on. Uh, Always a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, have a great night, friend. Thanks, Jeremiah. Great time. Thank you for listening to Bigfoot Society. If you like the show, please review and rate it five stars on iTunes. Hit the share button and send this episode to all your friends on social media. Subscribe to Bigfoot Society wherever you listen to podcasts. It doesn't cost a thing. Pick up a Bigfoot Society shirt or enamel pin over on our Etsy page and people will tell you all about their Bigfoot sightings when you wear it. At least that's what people tell us. That's what happens. If you'd like to become an official member of Bigfoot Society with a membership card, a community of like-minded individuals, and extra content each month, then please consider becoming a supporter of the podcast by going to www.patreon.com forward slash the Bigfoot Society. Thanks for listening.